0: It is good to be here together. Would you turn with me to Psalm chapter 51? That's in the middle of your Bible. We're gonna be there in just a moment. And I hope that the words we just sang of God's love being loyal stays with you for the next several minutes. We're going to be talking about this psalm together because God's loyal love is going to be the undercurrent and the foundation of everything I hope we talk about this evening, So as you're turning to Psalm chapter 51, I want you to think about your favorite songs. Does anybody want to shout out one of their favorite songs? What's one of your favorite songs? Hallelujah. Hallelujah by who? Pentatonics? Does it go, hallelujah? Wow. She must have some prophetic sense because we're going to be going to a place where one of those verses is based off of. So Zoe just gave like a little raise the roof sign. That song is originally by a guy named Leonard Cohen and it's covered by a million people, but the best one, and you can write this down in your handout, is by Jeff Buckley. Jeff Buckley in the 90s did the very best version of Hallelujah. If you wanna tell me someone did a better version of Hallelujah, I'm sorry you're wrong, go look at this at YouTube tonight. And you're dismissed, no I'm just kidding. Favorite songs. Anybody else got a favorite song? I want you to just think about your favorite song. The chances are when you heard your favorite song, it resonated with you. It wasn't just the kind of pop hit you hear on the radio and you move on. No, the songs that stay with you are the ones that captured some emotion or they kind of were at a pivotal point in your life. Is this any of you? It was the first dance or your first song or when you were a teenager on your first car. Am Am I hitting anything? No? Maybe it's this for you. My favorite song spoke for me. Like it gave me the words I couldn't muster on my own. Or maybe you said it spoke to me and it just hit me in this just right way. Our favorite songs have a way of doing that. I think about Jerry Jones, the owner of the Dallas Cowboys. Does anybody know the news of Jerry Jones last week? He was inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. I guess when you're a billionaire, they just want to give you awards no matter what. But Jerry Jones has been a long-time fan and owner and general manager of the Dallas Cowboys, and he gave a 40-minute speech last week. And Of all the 40 minutes, when he got down to the very end, he basically summarized his entire career and his entire speech in four lines of a Garth Brooks country song, because songs have a way of doing that. They have a way of speaking to us and even speaking for us when we can't find the words ourselves. And that's the spirit we're after in this series called Psalms for the Seasons. You'll see some reminders in your handout about the Psalms being the prayer book for God's people. They've given us words when we couldn't muster them. They've given us permission to lay it all out before God and others and find two things. Hey, I'm not alone. Somebody else has felt the way I feel now. And so each week we're looking at the kinds of seasons that can creep up in our lives and distort our vision of reality. It's beyond emotions, I feel sad, I feel happy. These are the kinds of seasons that can cover us like a fog and creep in and may be hard for us to name, but they creep up and distort our vision. So the Psalms remind us not only are we not alone, but the second important thing, and this is in your handout too, it reminds us that God is not done yet. It reminds us that God is at work even in the places that are difficult and hard. Last week we looked at when we want to go it alone. When life and community and family is so difficult we want to cut and run. The Psalms remind us that we are made from community, as in Father, Son, Spirit made us. And we are made for community. We are at our most human when we are connected to others. And third, that psalm reminded us we are formed by community. That when it gets real, God is using this body, warts and all, to form in us the person he's made us to be. That was last week. And this week, the season, the feeling that can creep up on us is one that I think we've all experienced, and that's this. What do we do when we've blown it? when we've royally, majorly blown it. And what I mean by that, of course, is when you've made mistakes. When you make mistakes, you might feel shame, which we sang about and we're gonna talk about. You might feel guilt, which we're gonna talk about. But you might feel, can I ever come back from this? Can I ever be forgiven by God? Can I ever be forgiven by the person I've wronged? And Lord willing, we're going to talk about that tonight as well. So we're going to look at Psalm 51, which comes from a place of someone who had majorly blown it and who's staring his guilt and shame in the face. And we can all say, yeah, that speaks to me because I've been there. And we can all say, maybe by God's grace, that speaks for me. And gives me the words that I'm scared to say when I want to confess and cry out and ask for forgiveness. But ultimately we're going to see, and this is the big idea for tonight, and it's in your handout. You don't have to run from God. You can always run to God. This psalm reminds us that no matter how bad you've blown it, you can always run to God and find a father whose arms are open if you would repent and run home to him. And the reason you can run to God, as we'll see, is that who he is, full of that loyal love that we sang about and the psalmist reminds us, who he is can overcome anything you've done. And that's what I hope we'll see tonight. So I'd like to read Psalm 51, and then I'd like to just kind of go with the psalmist, to this place of what we do when we've blown it, but really I think you'll see the most important thing is not that you blow it, but what do you do after the fact. You with me so far? Hopefully you're in Psalm 51. Would you stand with me, stretch your legs, and hear the words of the Lord? If you're willing and able, I invite you to stand. It's all right if you need to sit. I'm reading from the New International Version. Yours might sound a little bit different. Psalm 51 says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict, and you're justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. So cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you've crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I'll teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back from you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You who are God my Savior and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I'd bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. So my sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you'll delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole, then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of God for the people of God. And you say, thanks be to God. You may have a seat. That's a long and lengthy and deep psalm, and it's an insight into someone who has royally blown it. So let me ask you this question how do you think this psalmist feels? And I want you to talk back to me. How do you think he feels? Put some words of emotions and feelings to it. He just read his deepest, darkest diary. How do you think he's feeling? Shameful, good word. Guilt, great word. I'm going to enter, what? Vulnerable, fantastic word. I want to take and run with that and we're going to look at all of these things because I'm willing to bet that you have felt these things before. But I also think that this psalmist, and we'll say David, I think he also feels exposed, close to that word vulnerable. He's been found out. So what does he do next? And why does he feel this way? I hope these are the questions that are coming to your mind as you read this. And if you're a Bible scholar, you've probably read in your Bibles that italicized little paragraph right under where it says Psalm 51. How many of you have seen that already? It's called the superscription. Everybody say superscription. Imagine like a little italicized text with a Superman cape. I don't know why it's called a superscription, but it is. And the superscriptions will pop up time and again in psalms. And they'll give some kind of liturgical or worship direction. Sometimes they'll cite the author. And sometimes they'll even give you a little bit of background to help interpret the poem, the song, the psalm that comes after it. Now, superscriptions are tricky for two reasons. The first reason is that they've been added, most of them, much later than the original composition. Do you know our Bibles were composed and compiled from long scrolls that were divided up into different libraries? And so when they set to print it and, and put it together, people had to organize it and give some kind of shape to it. So what we get is these superscriptions that were added, most of them later. The second reason the superscriptions are tricky is because do you all see those two little words of David. Now, here's where scholars have been scratching their heads for years because that little word of can mean a whole lot. What if I said, whose microphone stand is this? Well, that that is of TNCs. That could be that it belongs to TNC. That could be that it was purchased by TNC, that it came from TNC. That it is for the explicit purposes of T and C. That little word "of" could mean that this psalm is by David. It could mean that it 's in honor of David. It could mean that it was inspired by David. So we just need to see that every one of these superscriptions can be a little tricky, but whoever added it, whether it was David or someone who was inspired by David, it's going to give us a clue and some context that we can imagine and fill out our understanding of this psalm. So, so far, we get that this psalmist has blown it, and what is he going to do next? And now we're going to dig in and count this superscription as giving us a clue, and we're going to look at the context from which this psalm might have come from and been inspired by. And why don't you see in your handout 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. If you'd like to, you can turn there. It's in the very beginning-ish of your Bibles. But it illustrates a very famous story that Zoe in her favorite song alluded to earlier. And that is the infamous story of King David, the David who slayed Goliath. He becomes a king. He becomes a great warrior. He is all over the Psalms because he was a king who cared deeply about worship and helped organize worship in the temple of the Israelite people. He was a big, big deal. But in 2 Samuel, chapters 11 and 12, he has a big, big problem. You see... At the beginning of chapter 11, we see that David already is up to a bad start. When all his people are out fighting, and it says when all the other kings are out doing kingly things, David held back. And I think that that's something that should alert us already. Even before we've blown it, how many times can we trace it back to see we were isolated before we blew it? How often? When we hide and we're in secrets and we're in a dark place, does it set the table for all kinds of bad things? Have you heard the term, idle hands are the devil's playground? David had him some idle hands and he goes up to the roof of his house because in those days you didn't have big old green front yards, you'd have kind of a rooftop patio And so David is looking around, and he's surveying his city, and he spies his neighbor's wife, and her name is Bathsheba. Have you heard of Bathsheba? Now, ironically, her name is Bathsheba, and Bathsheba was taking a bath. So Mark Sweet reminded me, he had already looked at the handout, and you'll see that David is about to to commit two pretty heinous sins, but he said it all started because he was alone, and then he became a peeping tom. So he sees Bathsheba as this verse in this song, Hallelujah, alludes to. And he gets, well, how men get when they see naked ladies. And when you're a king, you get to do whatever you want to do. So he invites that naked lady into his house, and he says, I'm just going to have her as a wife. Now David had him lots of wives, and you even see later on in Second Samuel, here he had all of this, but the second issue that precedes blowing it is, sin typically wants more. Over and over, God says, look at all that I've given you. But how much sin is not only traced back to when you're isolated and alone, but how much of it is when you look around and you say, you know what, this is nice, but I think I want more. I want more money, more this, more that, more this, more that. David wanted more. He brought Bathsheba. He committed adultery. And then she finds out she's pregnant, and he begins to have to hide his tracks. And so he calls for her husband, who was out fighting a battle, to come home. And he says, hey, you know, why don't you go be with Bathsheba? And probably to cover his tracks because if this man goes home to his wife, perhaps he would sleep with her and perhaps she would become pregnant. Spoiler alert, that's where babies come from. And perhaps David could continue to hide and that's the third thing that precedes blowing it. Not just isolation, not just wanting more, but then the third thing is trying to hide and keep things secret. And we're going to talk about that more in a minute. But with David's story, Uriah, he doesn't. He says, it's not right for me to to go there and be with my wife when all my brothers are out fighting and they're sleeping outside. And so David says, well, dang, what am I going to do now? So many of you know the story. And David orchestrates Uriah was his name, Bathsheba's husband, going to the very front lines in a secret plan because there's more secrecy. He sends him to the worst place of fighting and Uriah gets killed. So then David says, "Ha, ah, that was a close one." Well, fast forward a number of months. The child has probably been born, and David thought he got away with it, but in walks a prophet, and this is 2nd Samuel 12, and his name is Nathan. And he comes in and he tells this hypothetical story, and he says, "Hey David, Imagine there's this poor guy and there's this rich guy. And the rich guy has all this stuff, everything he has, but he wanted more. So he finds this poor guy with a little lamb and he says, you know what, I've got some guests. Poor guy, I need your little lamb. Give it to me. And he took his only lamb. You see where this is going? And this rich man, he slaughtered it and he fed it to his guests what should we do with this guy? And David flies off the handle. He's enraged when it's someone else. And he says, this guy should be killed, and the guy he took this thing from should be restored like four times what he took. Give him like four times the amount of lambs. And then, one of the most famous sentences uttered in the Old Testament. Nathan looks the king in the face and does a bold thing. He confronts him on his sin. He says, you are the man. And David is wrecked. David blew it. So if this is the context and the story, the big question is, what does David do next? Because everything within us tells us to go run back to the place of where? Isolation. Run back to the place of if I could just get this or do that or get more. If I could get back and get my fix. Or the third place, if I could just go and cover it up and hide it again. If I could go to some other person or some other place and no one can find me. Because here's what David was up against. He had just committed adultery. Look at Leviticus 20 verse 10. That's a few chapters back, books back in The Bible, Leviticus 20.10, is part of the law. And here's what happened to adulterers. If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, David committed adultery with another man's wife. And look, just so David knew, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and adulteress are to be, any guesses? Put to death, stoned. Stoned. Then David orchestrated a murder. Everybody was laying it at David's feet. Leviticus twenty four seventeen. let me give you a spoiler. It says anybody who would take the life of another must be put to death. David is facing two capital murder charges under the Old Testament Israelite law. Side note, we as Christians today are not under the 613 commandments of the Old Testament. We are under the new covenant that Jesus Christ inaugurated, but just until you think you're off the hook, you might not be put to death, but in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, yeah, you've heard it said you'd be put to death and don't commit adultery. I say if you look with somebody like this dude looked at Bathsheba, you've already committed adultery in your heart. Whoops. Whoops. Then he says, you've heard it said, you shall not murder. I say to you, if you look with someone and hate them and have contempt on them, it's like you've already committed murder in your heart. So though we're not consigned to the Old Testament law, Jesus ups the ante and elevates it and says, no, but these things are still a part of what it looks like to follow God's way and to live in the light, not in the darkness. So then we see, back in Psalm 51, David, I think, hints at this in verse 14. Look with me back in Psalm 51. He acknowledges that he's been committed of murder. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God my Savior, And then you see in verse 16 to 17, he knows because he's an adulterer and because he's a murderer, any sacrifice he would give would not get him off the hook. You with me? They're to be put to death. Elsewhere in Leviticus, it says, this is how it goes. There are no sacrifices to give. Verses 16 and 17, he says, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. Trust me, God, I'd do anything to get out of this but you do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. Because here's why, verse 17. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. Despise. Here's what he's saying. When you say sorry and ask for forgiveness, God, and let me tell you, others, care more about a humble heart than the right words or the right motions. How many of you have fallen into the sin of Adam in relationships where you say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, can we just move on to how it was five minutes ago because you're mad? Or how about this one? This is an Adam greatest hit on how I say sorry. This is my like phony fake burnt offering sacrifice. I'm sorry you're upset. Ooh, my wife is shaking her head right now. How many of you have been guilty of the I'm sorry you feel that way? I'm sorry you're upset. Well, you ain't got to be sorry because this is how I feel. So what are you going to do about it? That's what's at stake here. So David knows he can't do anything, so what happens next is crucial, and too many times you have to hear me, we want to run and hide, or we want to fake it, and we don't want to do the hard work of changing our mind and saying, you know what, this is sin, I've ruined and hurt our relationship, God, I've ruined and hurt my relationship with neighbors, therefore I need to change my mind and come out of hiding, come out of isolation, come out of secrecy, and I need to, this word, is confess, which means to agree, and say, you know what, I did this, I did that, because the apology should say, I am sorry for this, and I'm doing so in humility, I'm doing so honestly, and I'm not going to run and hide, I'm going to come to you, and I'm going to fall on your mercy, and everything hinges on what David says in verse 1. Everything hinges on it in verse one. Look at verse one. I can't give you a sacrifice. So he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing loyal love, according to your great compassion. Those are three words that highlight who God is. How many of you have heard the phrase, I throw myself on the mercy of the court? This is what it looks like not to run from God, but to run to God. Because when you know unequivocally this is who God is, you can turn to him. But you've got to know that he is merciful, slow to anger, compassionate. Write in your handout Exodus 34, 6, and 7. Earlier this summer, when we were tackling misconceptions of who God is, one of the ones we tackled was, is God an angry tyrant ready to get you every time you blow it? And we said, you know what was one of the most orthodox and oft-repeated statements in the Old Testament? Exodus 34, 6. I am the Lord, merciful, slow to anger, compassionate, and abounding in love to thousands of generations and forgiving the sins of a thousand generations. David knew this, God. So when you want to run from God, I think it's for two reasons. I'm just guessing here. I think it's because you really don't know God to be as loving as, you, as the Scriptures give him credit for. Would you allow yourself to believe that he is more loving than you could ever imagine? Would you allow yourself to believe that even at your lowest and darkest point, God leans in, not leans out? So would you lean into him? The second reason I think we run from God is this. Shame grows in the dark. Shame grows in the dark. Dr. Brene Brown, she's a research professor at the University of Houston. She has studied for decades in the field of social work and human connectivity. And her specialties, get this, are two things. Vulnerability and shame. Does that sound like a lot of fun to you? Years ago, she had a viral TED Talk. Have you heard of TED Talks? Woo-woo, TED Talks. She had a viral TED Talk on the power of vulnerability. She also gave one called Listening to Shame, and I'm going to quote something she said in that viral video in the TED Talk. If you put shame in a Petri dish, it needs three things to grow exponentially. Secrecy, silence, and judgment. When we're tempted to run and hide, what we're doing is allowing shame to fester. And I think that's what David did or the psalmist did for too long. First, secrecy. How long did he keep this quiet? How long did he think if I would just hold it in, it would be better? Secondly, silence. If Nathan hadn't confronted David, do you think he would have confessed? I don't think so. And you know what? I think that's why I don't confess. Because if no one knows, it must not be real. But if we really believe that God is who he says he is, and if we really believe that God knows us and still loves us anyway, lay it all out there before God. And then perhaps you would be able to be free to go lay it out to someone else and see them reveal God to you and say, you know what, I've blown it too. God has forgiven you, I do too. What's scarier? to keep that in for a decade and let it fester and grow in the dark and cause bitterness and to keep that shame tape on repeat, let me give you the two shame tapes. This is from Dr. Brene Brown too. The first one says, you're not good enough. The second one is, who do you think you are? Try a decade of hearing, who do you think you are? I know what you've done. How about that on repeat in the dark? How about you're not good enough? You'll never be right. Because that leads to that third bit of shame, judgment. What was going on in David's head when he saw Bathsheba, when he saw the funeral procession of Uriah? What was going on in his head every time he saw that child? And by the way, I need you to know this in 2 Samuel 12. The Lord forgave David, but David still had to suffer the consequences of sin, and the wages of sin is death, and God forgives us, but sometimes he doesn't let us off the hook. But let me tell you, it's freer to come out of the darkness where shame grows, because the enemy wants to keep you in the dark and let that shame and those tapes and that judgment go on repeat. But the Holy Spirit convicts us so that we might walk in his love and light. Look at all the confession words that we see back in Psalm 51. We only have a few more minutes, so I want you to catch these big words here. He gave, in verse 1, three words about mercy. Then in verse 2, he says, Blot out my transgressions. Wash away my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. And he says this in verse three, I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. And then he says this interesting thing in verse four, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you're right in your verdict. And don't you think that he sinned against Uriah? Don't you think he sinned against Bathsheba? Don't you think he sinned to his family and against these others? But in some deep level, when the Holy Spirit convicts us, I believe in kindness, the Holy Spirit allows us to see how deeply our sin affects us and how deeply it fractures our relationship and wants us to, causes us to want to run from God. So he's got this deep sense of like, yes, I've sinned against my neighbor, but ultimately it's because I put my sin in my way in front of you. So really, God, I've just sinned in front of you. And those three words he mentions in verse two, transgress, iniquity, and sin, they're all words of missing the mark, of twisting what's true, and ultimately overstepping our boundaries. So follow me here. When David goes on and says, you know what? I don't want to live in secrecy anymore. I want to be open and in the light. I don't want to be in silence anymore. I want to confess what I've done. So blot out, hide your face, do all these things for me. I don't want to face your judgment, even though it's just, would you forgive me? Because the Holy Spirit does not want us to walk in shame, though I think he will reveal our guilt, And so what David does is say, God, I'm at my wit's end. I'm guilty. But then look at verses 7 through 12. Look at these words. Cleanse me. Wash me. Let me hear joy and gladness. And then verse 8. Let the bones you've crushed rejoice. It's this way of saying, I've been so weighed down it's not that God has broken his bones, it's that I just feel this weight, would you lift it? Then he says, hide, blot, create in me a pure heart, don't cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. I want to say a side note on this. In the bottom of your handout, you'll see some really key scriptures that I would really love for you to look at another time in full. I want to draw your attention to Ephesians 1, verses 13 to 14. Many people have read this verse and have thought this, oh, dude, if I've blown it, is God going to withdraw his Holy Spirit from me? How many of you might have felt this way? Maybe you've not articulated as such, but you're like, God, I've done it so big this time that you're going to leave me just like so-and-so did. Let me tell you a bit of theology here. In the Old Testament, God moved and worked through a community of people called Israel. And the Holy Spirit of God was always present and at work. But especially in kings, they understood God's presence and Holy Spirit to anoint kings. If you looked at 1 Samuel, God anointed with the Holy Spirit a guy named Saul. But then when Saul ceased to be king, the Holy Spirit went and anointed David to be king. So the Holy Spirit, hear me, was always present, but not quite resident until the church was born. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit came, just like Ezekiel and Jeremiah, and even then Jesus promised. That those would not just follow God with the law outside, but a law in their hearts, and God would give his very self the Holy Spirit. And Ephesians 1.13 says, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. So know this, if you are a child of God, you have the Holy Spirit within you, which is what Paul tells us elsewhere. So you will never be unadopted if the Holy Spirit is yours. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ and the seal of the Holy Spirit. So the difference between this guilt that leads us to call sin a sin and say, Lord, please transform me from the inside out. The difference between that kind of guilt that says, I know this and I want to be better, would you transform me? The difference between that and shame is this, and you'll see this in your handout too, and this is from Dr. Brene Brown as well. Shame is a focus on self that says, I am bad. And guilt is a focus on behavior, though, that says, I did something bad. Do you see the difference? Here's a practical tip. You who deal with the children in our church, you who have children of your own, you who have children in your family, would you please make me a promise? Don't ever say, you are a bad kid. I don't want to ever hear you say that. What I would rather you say is, man, you really made a bad choice. And I know who you are. You're a kid that can listen and obey and be good and make good choices. Would you make the problem about the behavior, not about the person? David says, I know that surely I was conceived in sin. Did y'all remember that verse? How many of you were scratching your head wondering about that? Let me tell you. God makes kids that are affected by sin, but they're made in God's image. What David means when he says this is surely, I am so corrupt and surely I've been imperfect from the start, this is what he's after. But kids make bad choices, God doesn't make bad kids. Shame says I am bad, guilt says I did something bad. Second thing, shame says I am a mistake. Guilt says, I made a mistake. I think that's what David was getting at. I am a mistake. Surely I was sinful at birth. Surely I was rotten to the core. But then look what David says when he says in verse three, I know my transgressions, or verse 14, deliver me from blood guilt. He says, okay, I think I made a mistake. Do you see the difference with me? Let me give you another practical tidbit when you're dealing with forgiveness and blowing it and messing up. Can I tell you this? In your relationships that are strained, in your marriage relationships, would you please commit to make it issue-centered, not person-centered? Here's what I mean by that. There is a way when we come into conflict and we begin to blow it in relationships where we have one person here and one person there, and there's this tension, there's this fraction, there's this vision. And what happens is we begin to look at odds and attack the person. And we can even do this in the context of marriage. But what would it look like to instead of go face to face and toe to toe, you adopted a posture that says, rather than you being the mistake and you being the problem, what if we look at the mistakes that we've made rather than the mistakes we are? Because let me tell you, You are a child of God made in his image, and when you forget that identity, you're going to cause all kinds of hell on earth, and you're going to cause hell in the places and people that you love the most. So what if we took, rather than toe-to-toe, we came alongside, side-by-side, and we looked at this ugly thing right here in the middle? And oftentimes when we're meeting with people, I say this a lot, it really is painful to go into the surgery of digging out that gross secret thing that we want to confess but we've been afraid to, it's painful in the moment, just like any surgery, to get that lump, that mass that's been growing in the darkness, it's really painful to get it out in the light. So would you commit to love and bear with one another so that when someone digs out this issue and this problem, you would put it baldly and ugly on the surgical tray, but instead of going toe to toe, would you come alongside and lock arms and say, what are we going to do about this? Because let me tell you how I believe Jesus deals with you in your sin. Do you imagine that Jesus would stand face to face and wag his finger and yell at you? And if you did, I don't think you've been listening in our church. Do you think that Jesus wagged his finger at the woman caught in adultery? Do you think Jesus wagged his finger at Bathsheba? Do you think Jesus was grieved by that sin? Yes, but do you think Jesus was grieved by that person? No. I am not grieved by you when you blow it. God isn't either. Would we be a people that are committed to say, let us come alongside here like Jesus does and say, what are we gonna do about this? Would you right now make a commitment to keep things issue centered not person centered because there is too much at stake too much shame at stake so everybody blows it the real question is what do you do next Do you run against someone do you run from someone do you run against God do you run from God or do you run to God and Say, have mercy on me, O God, because you have a loyal love and you are compassionate. So blot out my sins, wash away my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. Those three sin words I mentioned earlier, twisting and going against and missing the mark. Follow me here. I think they all have that connotation. Because what we're doing when we're sinning is going against who we really are. Who we really are, if we're his, are his children. I was so mired in sin through a lengthy season in my life that I couldn't get out of it on my own. I was white knuckling it, I was hiding it from Amy, and I could not get over the hill And that's because shame said, I'm not good enough. Who do I think I am? Shame said, I am a mistake, not I made a mistake. Shame told me I am bad and not a child of God. So what I had was a sin-centric view. It looked more like verse 2 and less like verse 1. God in his grace put me through a 12-step, and he set me down and he broke through and he got to my heart and he said, I really love you, you idiot. I just wanted to see if you're awake. God didn't call me an idiot. You know what he called me now that you're listening? A beloved son whom I love. With you, I'm well pleased. Oh, I wish that you would wake up next morning and say, I am a beloved child of the Father. He is singing and dancing and in awe and in love saying you are precious, you are special, you are mine. Before we go out and hear all the voices to the contrary. Have mercy on me, O God. May I run to you and lean into you and find who you are and in so doing, find who I really am. Because then God can do incredible things when David says things like, open my lips and I'll tell sinners that you forgave me and that even though I blew it, I can tell that you're, you're not even gonna waste my story. This is why every single day, every single night, there is a 12-step meeting where someone says, I am this, but by God's grace, he is saving me. They say, I was this, here's my story, so you can feel two things. You're not alone and God's not done. Oh, that you would know that you are not alone and that God is not done. You have a community here. You have a God that is for you. And just in case you thought that these sins were hanging over you, look at the words of Colossians 2. This is how much God loves us. He gave Jesus, and he says this, Paul does, when you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, which is a way of saying when you were so far out to pasture, not even sniffing God's people, when you were dead and when you were cast out, you know what God did? He made you alive with Christ. You know what he called Christ? His beloved son, whom he loves, whom he well-pleased. You know who you are when you were dead? Made alive and in Christ in a beloved son, a beloved daughter with whom he's well pleased. He forgave us how many? I'm sorry, I'm looking right at it, but I don't hear you. All our sins. Okay, but, but, but I'm gonna sin tomorrow, forgiven. I sinned yesterday, forgiven. I sinned 25 years ago, and I'm still living in the repercussions. Get out of the dark, it's done. But you need to... You need to take hold of it. He's forgiven us all our sins, so why do we confess? Why do we 1 John 1, 9 to 13 that I have there? Why do we confess? Why do we walk in the light? Because even though he's forgiven you, you still need to own it and let it go. Even though he's forgiven you, there's still a fracture of relationship. Forgiveness is one way. God's forgiven you. Forgiveness is one way if you've forgiven your enemy. But reconciliation and amends, that's a two-way street. I've got a bunch of scriptures I didn't get to, and I want you to get to. Please, please, please will you get to them. But I want you to write another one down. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 to 21. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself in Jesus Christ. Forgiveness is one way. The world has been forgiven and every sin has been paid for. Reconciliation is two way. Would you repent and turn to God and come? Someone might have forgiven you but you've not reconciled. Would you seek God and see if you would extend reconciliation? He forgave us all our sins, canceling the charge of our legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Jesus died on a cross 2,000 years ago. He doesn't need to do it again. He never will. He is alive. He is risen. Death is done. Sin is done. Would you be done as well? We've all blown it, so what are you going to do? I would really encourage you with all my heart not to run away I would encourage you to run to a loving father. I'm not a perfect dad, but if I've done one thing right, it's even when my girls are sobbing and knowing full well they've made a mistake, they will always know that they are my children. Would you run to your heavenly father? No matter how far you've run away, you can always run home because every sin has been canceled and forgiven. And it's true because of his mercy and unfailing love and great compassion. Forgiveness can be yours if you would come to him and leave it tonight. We can run to God because of who he is. And he can overcome whatever we've done. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are so grateful for this space to be reminded of the all-encompassing, loyal, and unfailing love that you have shown us in kindness in the person of Jesus, your beloved son. We thank you for the Holy Spirit that has sealed us and reminds us that we're alive and reminds us that we need not gratify the desires of the flesh, but that we may walk in the Spirit and find life and light. Would we do so even now? In Jesus' name, amen. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, The only God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Go in peace.